All right, guys, facing that direction still. So when you turn around, you're going to have uh, 10 minutes to complete these 10 questions together. This is, this is open Bible, but not open notes. And um, what else can I say about this? We'll make sure that you can understand what the question is, first of all. So you guys got the rules? Groups of uh, three, except for... Caleb, who's, in, uh, who's a straggler in another group. Um, and anytime it says he on the board, that means the Apostle Paul. <laughs> hey, girls. We <laughs> We're just waiting for you. Does that make sense, Olivia? Okay. All right. Okay, you can turn around, face front now. So here are the questions. How many epistles did he write? You don't have to write down the question, just the number. How many epistles did he write? What chapter of Acts uh, was Paul converted? What's his longest epistle? What's his shortest? The epistle with the longest passage on spiritual gifts. What individuals did he write to? As opposed to churches. You're already starting, so I'm just going to stop talking. And time is up. All right, stop writing. How many epistles did the Apostle Paul write? 13. Well done. At least those of you who got it right. In what chapter of Acts was he converted? That is true. What is his longest epistle? Romans. And how do we know that? <laughs> uh, both are true. Um, yeah, you can count pages. You can go old school. Or uh, his epistles are written from longest to shortest, groups first, and then individuals. Uh, what is the shortest? Philemon. It's last, and it's just last. All right, epistle with the longest passage on spiritual gifts. Yes, 12 through 14. You don't have to give the, the reference, but it's, it is 1 Corinthians. Uh, what individuals did he write to? He wrote to groups, and he wrote to individuals. So what individuals did he write to? Yes. Timothy, Titus, Philemon. That is correct. We call the, well, Timothy and Titus, we call the pastoral epistles. Um, Philemon is what you call Philemon. Uh, name three he traveled with. Those are all true. Anybody have any other names on your list? Um, he traveled with a lot of different people at different times. Those are all correct. So it sounds like you guys went to the book of Acts to figure that out. Yeah, which is totally fine. You can also go to the beginning of his epistles. Uh, so he wrote, you know, 
Paul, blah, 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 and Timothy, blah, 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 or Paul and Timothy and, and Silas uh, or Silvanus. Um, yeah, he traveled with many. All right, how did he die? That was kind of a trick question. You either know it or don't. It's not in your, it's not in your Bible. So, um, Tradition says he was beheaded in Rome, um, and he was not crucified. I had to actually look this up because I wrote this down realizing, how would you know this? Uh, so he was not crucified because he was a Roman citizen. Roman citizens uh, were not crucified. It was not fit even for a Roman citizen to be crucified. Uh, where was he in Acts 28? That was kind of an easy one, but yeah, house arrest in Rome. Um, that is not the, so one imprisonment in Rome ends with his beheading, but not that one. So he's in Rome for two years, and then he actually is released, and he does more ministry, and then he's arrested again, and then he dies. What was he before he was an apostle? He was a Pharisee. Okay, how many got one or more correct? Excellent, well done. You got at least a 10 uh, on your quiz. All right, how many got five or more correct? Good job. Six, seven, eight. This is too easy. Nine, 10. So the whole front row cheated, obviously. <laughs> obviously. No, only kidding. So what was uh, the trickiest question? Five. Okay. If you didn't just know it off the top of your head, then that was going to be a tricky one. So was that just you thumbing through your, your New Testament? Okay. Somewhere. Okay. And then for name three, he traveled with, you just thought fast and... Figured it out. Well, good job, guys. <clears throat> All right, so we're doing the Apostle Paul today. In case you couldn't tell from our opening quiz. Now you can turn over your notes. Um, yeah, let me pray, and uh, then we'll continue. Father, we thank you for the Apostle Paul, his faithfulness to you, the way that you used this uh, Pharisee converted to Apostle in so many ways. We pray that his letters today and always would... would uh, would pierce our hearts and affect our thinking, that we would uh, live according to the, the Christianity that he presents to us. And, um, not that it's unique in the New Testament, but it is comprehensive. So help us, Lord, to understand him and live according to his teaching. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so the Apostle Paul, is a, he's, a, he's famously significant when it comes to the church, and to understanding Christianity. And one of the reasons is nobody gives such a comprehensive picture of Christianity as the Apostle Paul. 
Uh, so it's, it's not contradictory to anybody, obviously, in the, in the New Testament. It's, it's similar to what you see. You know, if you think of the book of Acts, um, the picture that Luke presents in the book of Acts of what a Christian, of what a Christian is and what the church is, I mean, it fits hand, hand in glove with the Apostle Paul. Um, but the, the Apostle Paul gives us so much theology. And we'll see in a second just all the controversies that the church has had and how they all find their way back to the Apostle Paul one way or another. So he's brilliant as, a, as, a, as an author, um, even though he would, use, he would use secretaries when he wrote his epistles, and we'll see an example of that in, uh, if we get to it in Philemon. Um, so a secretary, he would, he would speak the letter. So if, you know, if Caleb's my secretary, um, amanuensis is the word that they would use. So I'm, I'm writing, you know, Paul, an apostle, uh, blah, 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 blah. And Caleb is taking down notes. And then we're going to compare what he has when he's done, and then we're going to refine it. And then, and then he's going to make it beautiful, and then we're going to send it out to, to the Roman church or wherever, wherever it's going to go. And so that's typically how Paul would write his epistles. And sometimes the, the, the secretary that he used was a significant person like a Timothy or Luke. Um, uh, so he wasn't using just, uh, you know, 1-800-how-to-write-a-great-letter um, <clears throat> or writeagreatletter.com. Send us your letter and we'll make it happen. He was using significant uh, Christian leaders uh, to write these letters. And his conversion is famous because he was so... Opposite, opposed to Christianity, um, I didn't. I, I could. I should probably should have started with this. But so, what's the, what's his first appearance in the New Testament? What do we see him doing? Opening. Yeah, the first thing we find him doing is is one way or another uh, supporting and promoting the stoning of Stephen. So all, it says that they laid. So the guys who are actually doing the stoning uh, are uh, you know these Jewish citizens and leaders. So they lay their co- cloaks by the, at the feet of Saul, who we later know to be Paul. Um, there's a lot of guys in Acts who have two names. Um, seems like it's tied to his conversion, but it's not exactly clear. Um, but they lay their cloaks at the, at the feet of the, uh, the man Paul. And then in the next chapter, chapter 8, he's the one who is breathing murderous threats or some, some language like that as he's traveling around looking for Christians to throw into jail. Um, and so that's chapter 8. When you get to Acts chapter 9, he's on his way to Damascus. He's got letters to, uh, to give him the authority, basically, to imprison Christians. So he's on his way to Damascus to do that from uh, Jerusalem. And that's when the Lord saves him in this miraculous Damascus Road experience. Have you guys heard that phrase, the Damascus Road experience? So sometimes when, when you're referring to someone who has a radical conversion, uh, you, you talk about it as a Damascus Road experience because you're comparing it to the Apostle Paul who's walking along the Damascus Road and then sees a blinding light, like the sun just suddenly breaks through the clouds and he goes blind, can't see for three days, um, and he's converted. has a conversation with the living Christ, with Jesus, and he's converted at that point. So he has the definitive Damascus Road experience. So sometimes uh, conversions are called that. And so at that time, he's a, I mean, radically, uh, a radical enemy of the church. And then he becomes an apostle called to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. Um, 
And so the first time he comes to Jerusalem, they know who this guy is. So the first time he comes to Jerusalem, I should say, as a Christian, as a Christian leader, he, he doesn't get this great uh, warm welcome. Hallelujah, he got saved. Let's all you know, tell us your testimony, Paul. They assume he's there uh, you know, in, by stealth to come in and you know, slither his way in and to you know, bring about the, the downfall or the destruction or the arrest of somebody. And so they're like, no way. We don't want this guy in our, in our midst at all. And so Barnabas is the one who, who appeals and says, no, guys, he's really, he's really converted. I've seen, him, I've seen him minister in the name of Christ. Um, so that's chapter, uh, that's chapter 9 of Acts. And so then um, uh, Luke breaks away from Paul for a couple chapters. And then in chapter 13 comes back to the Apostle Paul, or chapter 11 comes back to the Apostle Paul. And, and then there's this massive outgrowth of church planting and apostolic ministry by Paul. So that's his kind of biography. So Pharisee to apostle to the Gentiles, uh, you know, violent opponent to the church to apostle. Um, and then he, of course, writes 13 letters, as we all know. He writes uh, the New Testament from Romans to Philemon. So even though he writes the most letters in the New Testament, he doesn't write the most amount of the New Testament. He was, of course, Luke. Good job. He wrote Luke Acts. Uh, so Luke Acts is um, a lot of the New Testament. Um, but he does write the most, the, the most letters and, um, you know, so many gospel passages. So if you're memorizing some gospel text, uh, a lot of times that's going to come from Paul's writing somewhere. Um, so the... Um, the thing you get in Paul is very deep theology. So all the, all the important topics of theology, who is God, how do we get saved, uh, what is the church, uh, who are the leaders of the church, roles of men and women, all those, all those issues are in the Apostle Paul. So you can, you know, if you want to know Christian theology, you could totally concentrate on the Apostle Paul, and you're pretty much 90% there. You should read the rest of your Bible, of course. But the other thing you get with Paul is a ton of, if you're trying to figure out how to read your Old Testament, uh, it sounds kind of counterintuitive, but the way to read your Old Testament correctly is you start with the New Testament, let that guide you, and then go back to your Old Testament and then figure out how to read your Old Testament. Because there's so much of the Old Testament that um, if you just read it forward, Genesis to uh, Malachi, you're going to... you're going to um, just not be able to pick up on all the important connections to the New Testament. And that's, that's part of the, the meaning of the Old Testament. So guys like Paul are really helpful for that. Um, and then the other thing with Paul is, is it's not just, um, not just theology that you get. You also get how, how you should live and how you should be as a person. Uh, you, know, you should be a, a joyful, loving, peaceful, faith-filled person. Um, so it's not just you know theoretical knowledge about God, but it's very practical. And then he's very controversial. So uh, page forty-seven in your notes. One thing about Paul is pretty much every significant controversy the church has ever had, one way or another, goes will will be fought using the the language of Paul. And, um, you know, you can go to, I mean, in some ways, 
Sorry about my eraser. It's clearly not up to the task. Um, so that says Catholic and Protestant, if you can't read that. Um, Catholic and Protestant is basically a battle over the gospel. What is the gospel? How is a person saved? The Catholics wouldn't say it this way, but they basically have a, a version of the gospel where works, uh, we'll call it works plus faith. Versus faith alone. In that battle, that is like the definitive Protestant Catholic battle. So they, they fought over a lot of other things as well. The sacraments, Mary, um, uh, priests, and I mean, hundreds of things. But the definitive battle between Catholics and Protestants had to do with the gospel. What, how is a person saved? And do you need works or is your faith alone sufficient to save you? And the answer is faith alone. And we know that from the writings of Paul. It's in, it's in other books of the, of the New Testament, clearly. But the battle so often would go back to Paul, especially the book of Romans. That was a, a huge battleground. Um, and what's the second controversy I have there? Yeah, Calvinism, and obviously Calvin and Arminius came over a thousand years after the Apostle Paul, so it wasn't like Paul is talking about Calvin or talking about Arminius. These guys, so Arminius was in the 1500s, Calvin was in the 1500s, and they, they not the two of them, but their, their followers had a huge battle, again, over grace um, sin, um, you know, how, how do I believe, which, which has to do with, uh, when you, when you responded to Jesus, when you re responded in faith to Christ, was that because you just mentally were persuaded or were you mentally persuaded because God changed your heart? Um, so there's, so, you know, did the did grace? I think you can say it this way. Did grace lead you to faith? You know, did did grace work in your heart and bring you to faith, or in some ways, did your faith lead to receiving grace from God? So, Calvin. He would say, grace. Arminius, he would say, your faith leads to grace. And the faith is just you being mentally persuaded. Um, and that, those, all those battles go back to Paul's writings. Uh, huge controversies. Um, and we, on this, we definitely side with Calvin um, because it's right. It's true. Um, God changes your heart. That's the internal calling of the Holy Spirit, the internal calling. And then... And then when you hear the external call of the gospel, the invitation to believe and be saved, you respond to it. But you won't respond without grace because you are dead in your sin. Ephesians 2.1. Um, so another huge controversy goes back to the Apostle Paul. What's number three? Egalitarian. Yes. It's important when you're talking theology to make your words as long as possible. <laughs> Short words are for wimps. We use only 
long words. So complementarian, um, what is the word at the front of, the, of that long word? Compliment. And that's not compliment with an I where I give you a compliment because you're so handsome or beautiful. Um, you are handsome and beautiful. But we're talking about something different here. This is when two things complement each other. So puzzle pieces that fit together complement each other. Whereas egalitarian, it's, it's, a, it's a little bit hidden, but the word at the beginning of that is actually equal. So if you're talking about uh, something that's egalitarian, you're talking about things being equal. And so this has to do with gender roles, <clears throat> men and women in the church, men and women in the family, men and women in society. So uh, the question is, are we totally equal in every way we can do? Uh, there's, there's no distinction in the family, no distinction in the church, no distinction in society. Or, yes, we are equal, but are we also complementary where we, we have different roles, different functions, different places, different callings in the family, the church, and society? And so huge issue, obviously massive issue in our day. Um, and we would, we would side with complementarianism. And a lot of the reason we do is because of the writings of Paul. He is very, he's very clear in, a, in passages like Ephesians 5. Uh, all, the, all the times where he's talking about husbands, wives, masters, slaves, children, parents. Uh, re, those are called the household codes, the household code. Uh, so in all those passages, he's very clear that there are, there's equality, and yet there's distinction in terms of what we're called to do and be um, in the family, the church, society. So we are complementarians. Fourth controversy. Yeah, so church government. Yeah. So church government. So you know, once once a bunch of Christians get together, they have to decide how are we going to get how we're going to be organized as a church. And so there's a few different uh, main versions out there. Uh, so you have congregationalism, which means the congregation has the final voice of authority. So a lot of Baptist churches are congregational, and uh, Southern Baptist churches, independent Baptist churches. Uh, so Shepherd's Church, um, technically I think the summit would be, um, you know, Apex Baptist up around the corner here. A lot of Baptist churches in our area are congregational. So that means that when there's a, you know, your budget has to be approved, or you're going to hire or fire somebody in ministry, it means that the congregation is going to vote. And whatever the majority vote is, that's what the church does. Uh, so the, you know, if we were congregational in this church here, you know, uh, um, Kirsten would stand up on some Sunday and say, I, I think we need to vote about my dad, whether or not he should be the pastor of our church. And because she's a, a member of the church, she, she would have the right to do that. She would have the ability to do that. And so then after church on that Sunday, there would be a vote. And if half of you, more than half of you wanted me to stay on as pastor, I would stay. And if more than half of you wanted me to go, I would go. There would be no, there would be no appeal, no discussion. That would be it. Uh, typically, the way it actually works, and in smaller churches, you vote on a lot of things, a lot. Especially because you vote on the budget, and the budget has, you know, 100 things on it. Larger churches, you're going to vote on big things. Um, you know, should we buy this piece of property or, or this lead pastor or these? Uh, should we 
or fire this guy. So that's congregational. Um, uh, I'll go to Episcopal next. You know, and as you guys know, whenever there's a list, the last one on the list is the one that the guy actually agrees with. So that's, that's what we'll do here. So Episcopal, you've, you may have heard of Episcopal, an Episcopal church. Um, and the reason it's called an Episcopal church is because its government is actually Episcopalian. It's got an Episcopalian government. So an Episcopos is an overseer. So in 1 Timothy 3.1, whoever desires to be an overseer desires a noble thing. And so they would say that over, the Greek for overseer is episkopos. And they would say that that actually means a bishop. So you have, you have the, the pastor or the priest that's over a church, but over those pastors and priests you have a bishop. And a bishop would be the guy who governs an area. And so he governs a bunch of churches. So that's a hierarchical, you know, you've got the bishop and you've got the priests, pastors, and then you've got the, uh, the church. Um, so the Roman Catholic Church is, a, is an Episcopalian church because it's, you know, you've got, the, you've got the pope, you've got the bishops, you've got the priests, and you've got the, the parishes. Um, and then the last one is Presbyterian. And that's because of the Greek word presbyteros, which is the Greek word for elder. And so that means the elder has, has the, uh, the authority in the church. So the, author, the, the elder is going to be the one who governs and makes the key decisions in the church. Um, and with all these, you know, a congregational church, especially one like the Summit or Shepherd's Church, they have elders who do things, pastors who do things and make decisions, but the final authority is the congregation. And also in an Episcopal church, the congregation is going to make some decisions, but the bishop has the final authority. And in a Presbyterian church, congregations are going to do things, give, uh, give advice, counsel, strong recommendations, but the final authority is going to be with the elders. So our church here is Presbyterian even though we're not called a Presbyterian church. But we are, our government is actually a Presbyterian government. And one of the reasons we are is because of the writings of Paul. Because when you go to, uh, especially places like First, first and Second Timothy, um, and then you, and then, yeah, you see a, a Presbyterian kind of government fleshed out there. All right, so that's the, that's the fourth controversy. And that's a huge, I mean, the, one of the reasons we have denominations and one of the reasons our church splits uh, or church divisions, different kinds of churches, is, is simply because of different views on church government. Um, it's not the only reason, but that is, that is one of the reasons. And obviously, sometimes the name of the denomination comes from its, its church government, like Presbyterian or Episcopalian. All right, so what's the fifth controversy? Um. So cessationism, it, it's kind of hidden, but the, the beginning of that word is actually the word cease. Um, <clears throat> that's kind of buried in there with the form. But here you're talking about spiritual gifts. Have, have certain spiritual gifts ceased? And if you say they have, then, then you're a cessationist. Or do they continue? And therefore you are a continuationist. Continuationist. And here, we don't mean all the gifts, but we mean gifts like... Um, 
Well, I have it written down there. Uh, prophecy, speaking in tongues, uh, miracles, gifts of healing. So even though um, all people, all Christians are going to pray for healing, and actually even non-Christians are going to pray for healing for somebody, they, they wouldn't believe, so they might believe that God does still heal people, but not in the gift of healing. Uh, the gift of healing is where, you know, maybe I have the gift of healing, and so often when I pray for somebody, they're healed. Um, so that's the gift of healing versus, you know, if I just pray for someone to be healed, it doesn't necessarily mean I have the gift of healing. I'm just praying that God would heal somebody. Prophecy, same way. Um, <clears throat> if you're continuationist, you're going to say the gift of prophecy is still in the church today. So there are prophets and, and people who prophesy. They, they may not have the gift of prophecy, but they can still prophesy. Or the gift of tongues and interpretation, or the gifts of miracles, uh, which is where you have the, you know, you, can, you pray and powerful things happen, miraculous things happen. So that's the gift of miracles. And so this, a cessationist is going to say that those gifts were for the first century. When the gospel was being preached, it was new. The gospel needed to be established and proven. And so those are called sign gifts because they were a sign of the true gospel. But continuations would say, yeah, but 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, 1 Thessalonians 5. I mean, there's just a ton of writing in the Apostle Paul that would give, give you the expectation that these gifts not, aren't just possibly for today or for every era of the church, but actually they're meant to be earnestly desired, earnestly pursued today. And Paul doesn't distinguish between gifts that are still today and gone. And then some, you know, some are here, some are gone. All the gifts are presented as if they're all for the church till Christ returns. So Paul's a huge reason why we are continuationists. Um, and then, is there another controversy? Yeah, let's skip that one. Is there another one? That's the last one. Yeah, that, that one has to do with how you understand your whole Bible. So uh, one simple way to get at the difference is has to do with the laws of Moses or the laws in the Old Testament. Do you think a Christian should obey the laws of the Old Testament uh, or some of the laws, the moral laws, or not? So if you're, if you're Reformed Covenantal, you would say, yes, you should obey those laws. You should, uh, you know, the, the, the Ten Commandments, like you, sh- you honor your mo- father and mother, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, uh, love God, love your neighbor. Those are all still binding on Christians. And, and they're not binding just because they're also written in the New Testament. Uh, they're written in the New Testament in some ways because they're binding. Um, but if you're New Covenantal, you're going to say that we live in the New Covenant now. All that's in the Old Covenant, including all the moral laws, that's, that's not for today. That's, that's gone. Uh, or if you are dispensational, uh, there's a lot, there's, because a lot of Southern Baptists are dispensationalists, uh, there's a lot of dispensationalists in our area. So Shepherd's Church would be a dispensational church. And so they, they would divide salvation history up into different dispensations. And, and one of the differences between us and them would be they would say that the Old Testament laws like someone who's new covenantal, those Old Testament laws are not for today. Whereas if you're Reformed covenantal, you would say, actually, some of the laws are for today. Some of the moral laws in the Old Testament are binding on us today. Well, the moral laws are binding on us today. But the point of all that is that the reason we say that has to do with what the New Testament does with the Old Testament laws. And so if you look at the writings of Paul, he very much 
treats the Old Testament laws, the moral laws, as if they're binding on Christians today. If you read passages like Romans 12 through 15, he just he drops in probably a dozen or two dozen Old Testament laws, and he treats them as if we should obey them. Not in some special way, like you pick and choose laws, but because the moral laws are binding. Yes? Uh, what moral laws would like Reformed covenantals still obey and that like New Covenantal dispensations would not? Um, yeah, two that are that are that are often pointed out are the tithe, and I would say um, uh, spanking. You know, corporal punishment means uh, physical punishment of a child, and so that you know you have in Proverbs, spare the rod. Have you guys ever heard that? Spare the rod, spoil the child. Spare the rod, spoil the child. Um, so if you don't use physical punishment on your child, then you're spoiling your child and you're, you're hurting them. You're not helping them. Um, so physical punishment is a, is a way to train the heart, not just, the, not just to bring punishment in the moment, but it's actually a way to train the heart. Um, but that's in the book of Proverbs. So if you say, if, if you, if you don't, I mean, this is, this is if you're being consistent in your view. Um, a lot of people just aren't consistent. So they pull Old Testament commandments and they treat them as if they're binding, even though technically they shouldn't. Um, but that is, that would be an example of a moral, uh, a moral law. And tithing where you give 10%. Um, how you treat that would be, uh, probably connected to how you treat the Old Testament in general, broadly. Um, so if you're Reformed Covenantal, you would be comfortable talking in terms of the tithe as a, an ongoing practice. But if you're not Reformed Covenantal, you would, you would talk about generous giving, but not the tithe. Yes, sir. Great question. Could this eraser be worse? That's the question. Could it could it be worse? <clears throat> um, all right, so So the short answer to Sarah's question is start with your New Testament and then go to your Old Testament. And when you, when you look through your New Testament and the whole thing, so the Gospels, Acts, the Epistles of Paul, Hebrews, uh, Peter's, Peter's Epistles, John's Epistles, James, Jude, Revelation, the whole thing. Um, what, you, what you notice is there's a lot of Old Testament commands that we should do. So that's, that, that tells you that at least some of the Old Testament commands are for today. And then as you keep, as you keep looking at these commands, you realize there's a pattern. Um, 
If it's a ceremony, you know, a sacrifice, uh, uh, something connected to the priests of the Old Testament, we are never told to do that in a, in a direct or literal way. So um, the Day of Atonement, is, it was, in terms of sin sacrifices, that was the, high, the highest sacrifice there was. And that was every, basically every September. Uh, the high priest would offer the, the, the sin sacrifice in the holy place, the most holy place. Um, and we're never told to offer that, that, that kind of sacrifice in the New Testament. But we're also told that Jesus uh, fulfills those sacrifices. So in the book of Hebrews, the author goes to great lengths to show that Jesus fulfills the Old Testament sacrifices, the sin sacrifices. Um, uh, so that's ceremonies. And then you get civil civil laws are... Um, they would have to do with the nation of Israel, governmental types of things, kings, um, taxes. Um, you know, specific punishment. So if, if someone steals, what, what's the punishment for that person? And actually the Old Testament is very clear, you know, about specific punishments for specific crimes. So if you, if you steal someone's ox, you have to return that their ox, but also another ox as restitution, which is different than capital crimes, where if you commit a capital crime like murder, you are to be killed. So there's very different punishments for very different crimes. Um, But when you get to the New Testament, it's almost totally silent on those kinds of things. We're told not to steal in the New Testament, but we're never, but civil kinds of things, things that have to do with governments and and citizens, that's not, uh, the New Testament never tells us to obey those commands. Does that make sense? All right, so you get we'll, we'll call this we'll call this silence, but then you get this third category, which people tend to call moral laws, um, and whenever those laws are talked about in the New Testament, we're always told to obey them, to do them. Um, so I mentioned I mentioned the book of Romans. So turn to Romans twelve. All right, so Paul tells us to do a lot of things in these chapters, Romans 12, 13, 14, and 15. tells us to do a lot of things. Um, but, but the key is why we are supposed to do them. Why, why does he tell us to do them? So as an example, when you get... So Romans uh, so 12, 9, Let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good, love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor. Lots of commands are given there. They're not quotations from the Old Testament. If you look ahead, we know that the, the, um, the love your neighbor command is a, is a huge command for the Apostle Paul. And why would it be a huge command for the Apostle Paul? Do you, th- do you think? Yeah, and Jesus, yeah, Jesus called it 
what, com- what kind of commandment? The Not the greatest, which is to love God, but the second greatest, yeah. And, um, you know, I should put those up here. These, these two commands, those are, those are the, the overarching summary commands. So the moral commands generally have to do with loving God or loving your neighbor. And so for Paul, loving your neighbor um, is one of those commands that we are to live out in daily ways in the church, especially, but also in all society. Um, anyway, so that's where he's coming from when he emphasizes love. So you can tell that if you fast forward to chapter 13, verse 8. Oh, nothing, oh no, no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves, loves another, has fulfilled the law, which implies that we are supposed to do that. We're supposed to fulfill the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And where do we find those? Those are some of the Ten Commandments, right. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. So he's acting as if we are supposed to fulfill the law. We are supposed to obey the command to love your neighbor as yourself. But that's an Old Testament command. That's from Leviticus 19, verse 18. Um, and then the other interesting thing he's doing there is he's connecting that commandment, love your neighbor, to the, to the Ten Commandments. So love your neighbor as yourself is a summary. Basically, he's saying that summarizes, our, or if you want to... If you want to summarize the Ten Commandments, you look at love your neighbor as yourself. All right, so we go back to uh, sorry, chapter 12, verse 19. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, and then quote, If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For, for by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Unquote. So we are to act a certain way, never avenge ourselves, because it is written, and it's written in the Old Testament. Um, So the motivation to do this thing has to do with what is written in the Old Testament. So it's not just that Paul's saying it, he's telling us to do it because it is written in the Old Testament. Uh, So he's quoting there, uh, I believe that's Deuteronomy, is that right? Uh, 19... Yeah, Deuteronomy 32, 35. And then verse 20, he's quoting Proverbs. So he's so that those commands were supposed to follow because they are written. Um, and then he continues. Um, but you see, those are those are uh, those are moral commands. So Honor, honor your father and mother, not coveting, not murder, not steal, not adultery. That's, that's how we love our neighbor. And, and loving your neighbor is an Old Testament command. Um, Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. Therefore, we are supposed to live a certain way. Uh, we're, we're supposed to return good even when someone treats us with evil. That's part of loving your neighbor. Um, so those are very different than the ceremonies, right? Ceremonies require me to get a pigeon or get a goat or get a bull. Um, 
and go to this very specific place and do this very specific thing. And so when it comes to ceremonies, Jesus fulfills those ceremonies. When it comes to the morals, I'm supposed to do that. And so that pattern is actually pretty consistent in the New Testament. Um, sometimes Paul will he'll use ceremony language for things like um, uh, when we give financial gifts to the church, he'll use language that's like sacrificial language, a fragrant aroma, aroma pleasing to the Lord, pleasing and acceptable to the Lord. Um, or um, he'll equate, well, like in, in Romans 12, 1, he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. So we do offer sacrifices as New Testament Christians, but we are the sacrifices. Um, so we present our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So it's not, it's not me keeping a Levitical law. Now it's I am the sacrifice. And so those, if you just kind of just take note as you're, as you're reading your New Testament and you get to commandments that are quoted from the Old Testament, just or, or um, things quoted in the Old Testament that we're not obligated to do, but Christ did. Um, just just th- have this breakdown in mind. I think you'll find that, oh, wow, that's, that's a very consistent pattern. Um, and so that, where's the history of that? Um, I think basically for us, uh, that 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 way of the, the threefold division of the law, that's typically Aquinas and then to Calvin um, and then the Reformed to us. That's how, we, that's how we get that division. We didn't make it up, but um, theologians haven't been using that division for a long time. Um, but the reason they do is because of, it's because of the New Testament pattern. So if you go back to your Old Testament, that kind of division isn't isn't as obvious. There actually is a there is a basic division of the of the Old Testament laws, even as they're written originally. Um, but it's because of the New Testament that we um, that we adopt that measure. Okay, so that's Paul, the controversialist, the controversial man. Now let's skip to because of time. We've already done the book of Acts. We have it totally memorized. We don't even need to go there. We won't review his history. Um, if, you, uh, if it ever becomes relevant and it's a question you want to know. So what I did with his biography is I basically matched it with his epistles. So where are his epistles written in the flow of his biography as we have it in Acts? So that's what you have in Roman numeral 6. Seven, eight, and somewhat nine. Yes, nine and ten. All right, so let's finish with what is an epistle because you're going to be reading his epistles. You already have written, uh, read some. And next time we're going to go into uh, the, the epistle of Ephesians in more detail. Uh, what's the one word definition for what an epistle is? Yeah, it's, it's, it's just a fancy way of saying it's a letter. And, it, and they really were letters. They were letters written by a person to a person or by a person to a people or by a group of people to another group of people. Um, so they weren't, 
they weren't anything more than that. We tend to think we tend to call them epistles and not just letters because they were written it's kind of in a formal way. They were it's it's kind of like if you're if you're going to if you're going to greet a group of people, um, you know, you can do that really casually. Hey guys, or you can do it in a very formal way. You know, I, you know, as a representative of the United States of America, greet you in the name of the president or whatever. It just depends on the situation, right? Um, but it's still just a greeting. And so with epistles, you kind of get that they're, they're, they are personal letters and some of them are very personal, um, but they're also written with an awareness that this is a, this is kind of a significant moment. It's a formal moment, and probably other people are going to read this letter. Um, so, th- so they took, uh, so guys like Paul would take great care in, in writing them. So the parts of an epistle. So I'm on uh, page fifty, letter D. There, parts of an epistle. These are not unlike you know if you're going to write a, a kind of a longer email, not just a super casual email or text to somebody, but a longer email to somebody. You're going to use these same basic things. You're going to have some kind of minimal greeting. Um, you know, if it's if it's a if it's an email to your grandmother to thank her for the birthday present or the Christmas present, it was really lavish and unexpected. You you might say, you know, Grandma, thank you so much. You love blah blah blah. So um, so you're going to have a greeting. And then you're going to have the body of the letter, and then you're going to have a closing, right? So those are the three basic parts. Paul's letters um, would have these other parts, however, in almost every single letter. So he typically had a greeting, which was several verses sometimes. Um, so Paul, um, well, why don't we turn to the book of Philemon, being the shortest. Because it's got it's got all the parts that his longer epistles have. It's just uh, it's just briefer. So his greeting is the first three verses. So Paul he identifies himself, and if he has a co-author or a co-writer, he's going to include that person here. Paul, a prisoner of, for Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother. And this imprisonment is the that house arrest in Rome, uh, the two-year house arrest in Acts twenty-eight. So it's Paul and Timothy. And then he's going he's gonna to say to, to somebody. Who's he writing to? And well, in this case, it's to Philemon. It's a person. To Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. So Philemon is a, he's a, uh, he's a guy who has, it's either a part of a church that meets in his house, or he's an elder, actually, with a house church. So, and then... In 13 out of 13 letters, Paul is going to say some version of grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And in third, well, yeah. So that's in those parts of the greeting. So the from, the to, and then the grace to you. Those are, he's got that in every single epistle. And then the, the next part, so you have anything to say there? Well, grace and peace. Grace is a, um, is a common Greek, so uh, charis. That would be a common Greek greeting, um, whereas peace would be a common Jewish greeting. So shalom would have been a common Jewish greeting. So he kind of combines both the Greek and uh, the Jewish practice there, grace to you and peace. And then he has, in this letter, he has a thanksgiving. 
So I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers. And then he'll say, why, why, is, he th- why is he thankful? So in 12 out of 13, he has a Thanksgiving section. Anybody know which letter he does not have a Thanksgiving section? Yeah, Galatians is a, it's a different kind of letter. He's pretty angry because they, they are forsaking the gospel. And so there is no Thanksgiving section. He just goes right into the, the content of the letter. It's pretty stern. I mean, he's writing in love to a church he just planted, not very long before that, but there isn't a Thanksgiving section. But in all of his other ones, there is a Thanksgiving section. So here he says, I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers because I hear of you, hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And then, and I pray. So you have a Thanksgiving and then you have a prayer section. And in his letters, he, he actually prays. And I pray such and such. I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. And if you ever want to know how to pray for someone, read the letters of Paul when he prays for people. That's a good model for how to pray for people. So not every epistle has a prayer section, but almost all of them do. So then after he does the prayer section, he, you get to the body of the letter. And in this case, I don't know if you know the story, but Onesimus is a slave that Philemon had. So this is a, uh, you know, whether it was a harsh or not, not harsh enslavement, we don't know. But Onesimus ran away. So he ran away from Philemon, and he, in God's providence, he ended up in Rome, and he got saved through the, through the ministry of the Apostle Paul. So he gets saved through Paul's ministry, and then he's a, he's a very useful uh, worker with, with Paul. So Onesimus is mentioned in other places. I think in Colossians he's mentioned as well. So he's ministering with Paul in Rome. You know, Paul's in house arrest, so Onesimus probably would be one of the guys who would help get food and, and drink and clothing and what he needed, as well as doing, thing, doing tasks on behalf of Paul. And then at some point, why this would be necessary, we don't know. But at some point, Paul said, you know, you should go back to Philemon and make things right with him. You know, at this, Philemon is a Christian, right? Paul's a Christian, Philemon's a Christian, Onesimus is a Christian. All three of them are Christians. So it's, it's, a, it's a fascinating study just because of uh, the, the slavery issue and the slavery issue in the United States. But he does send Onesimus back, but, he's, and, but in terms of slavery... Um, where it's, what's fascinating is that he wants Philemon to treat Onesimus as a brother in Christ. You know, before he was just your slave. Now he's a brother in Christ, and you need to treat him as a brother in Christ, not just a slave. So anyway, fascinating study. But that's the, that's the body of the letter. And, he, and, he, and then Paul even says, I could demand this of you because I'm an apostle, but I'm not going to do that. And he says, I could demand this of you because you owe me. <clears throat> but I'm not going to do that. Uh, and if, uh, if Onesimus owes you anything, I will pay it. I will pay his debt. Anyway, he's putting a lot of significant pressure on Philemon to take Onesimus back in very good terms. So that's the body of the letter. So, he, so then the finishes the body of the letter. And just as a, another thing to note as you're reading in Paul's epistles, verse 19 says, I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it to say nothing of your owing, owing me, even your own self. So when Paul says, I write this with my own hand, that's where, you know, like with Caleb, my secretary from before, that's where I say, Caleb, I'll write this part. So I get the pen back from Caleb, and I write with my own hand, Daniel. With my, I write this with, I, you know, I, Daniel, write this with my own hand. 
pay what you owe or don't, or, you know, don't make him pay. And then I give the, the pen back to Caleb and he finishes out the letter. That's what's happening there. So that's, that would be, you know, if you saw the original, there would be one style of handwriting. Then suddenly, I mean, generally it's thought that he probably didn't have great handwriting. Probably had pretty rough handwriting um, because he's asking someone else to write his letters. You know, Paul breaks in and then the handwriting goes back to what it was originally. And so anyway, he finishes the body and then you get to the closing and there's always personal greetings. Um, you get to verse 23, Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ, uh, Christ Jesus, sends you greetings to you. And so do Mark, that's John Mark, John Mark who wrote the Gospel of Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke who wrote the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. Luke is with them, my fellow workers. So the personal greetings... And then a final wish of grace. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with, your, be with your spirit. And in 13 out of 13 epistles, there's that closing wish for grace. Even, even in the book of Galatians, he closes with a wish for grace. So those are the parts of a, an epistle. So next time when we look at Ephesians in more detail, we'll see those same parts, but uh, kind of developed more fully. If you go to the book of Romans, it's got the same parts. They're just developed more fully. So they're... Like in Romans 16, and there's an entire chapter of personal greetings and the final close. All right, that's it. See you next time.